When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Welcome back, everybody. Glad you've come back for more. By the time you've made it through 3 Nephi chapter 21, you've just finished Isaiah chapter 52, but you're only about halfway done with Isaiah chapters here in 3 Nephi. We usually associate the Isaiah chapters with 2 Nephi, but there's some at the end of 1 Nephi, there's some earlier on in 2 Nephi before you get that massive chunk from chapter 12 through 24. There's the Isaiah chapter that Abinadi teaches and his message to the wicked priests of King Noah. And then there's a whole lot of Isaiah that Jesus himself quotes here in 3 Nephi. What's amazing about it all, though, is if you pull out that big chunk in 2 Nephi, which is historical, from Isaiah 2 through 14, everybody else's Isaiah gets woven together and everything from Isaiah 48 through 54 is presented somewhere in the Book of Mormon over the centuries. It is one of the most intricate and incredible things that I've seen as far as how the Book of Mormon was all assembled. Those that just want to say, oh, Joseph Smith just made up the Book of Mormon out of his head. I just want to say, then he was the greatest Isaiah scholar that the 19th century ever produced. Uh, it's incredible how complicated it is. Let me run through it real quick with you. Isaiah chapter 48 is quoted in 1 Nephi 20. That's Nephi speaking about 600 years before Christ. Then 49 appears in 1 Nephi 21, that's still Nephi, but it's repeated again in 2 Nephi 6, a generation later with Jacob. That's now about 550 BC. Fast forward, now Isaiah 50 appears in 2 Nephi 7, still Jacob. 51 appears in 2 Nephi 8, still Jacob. 52 appears in 2 Nephi 8 with Jacob and is repeated in 3 Nephi 20 by Jesus. Then 53 is the chapter that Abinadi quotes to the priests of Noah. And then that's Mosiah 14, 150 years before Christ. And then Isaiah 54 is quoted here now in 3 Nephi chapter 22. That's Jesus around 34 AD. So you follow that from Isaiah 48 through 54. The big Isaiah chunk is a historical kind of preview of what the scattering and gathering of Israel is all about. These chapters, 48 through 54, is more of the theological explanation of the scattering and gathering of Israel. Same topic, basically, but different approaches. And it's amazing that from a Nephi to a Jacob to an Abinadi to a Jesus, it's like they're passing the baton over the course of 600 years, basically, just picking up where the last one left off and moving things forward through these incredible Isaiah chapters. It's amazing to me. In fact, check this out. If 3 Nephi chapter 20 is the Lord's quotation and explanation of Isaiah 52, chapter 22 of 3 Nephi, and you can see it right there in the chapter heading, is a repetition of Isaiah chapter 54. So Jesus is teaching them Isaiah 52 and then teaching them Isaiah 54. 
What has he skipped? He skipped Isaiah 53. Now, Abinadi didn't. We still have it in the Book of Mormon thanks to Abinadi. But it's amazing to me the fact that Jesus omits that chapter because Isaiah 53 is the one that is most centrally focused upon him and what he did personally in the atonement to make it possible for any scattered soul to be brought back home to God. To me, that is such a profound example of the Savior's humility. Not to talk about what he did to make all of this possible, simply to move from Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 54, leaving his role in the atonement unspoken, even though it's his atoning role that is the most important part that makes it all possible. In fact, I would say this, and I don't think I'm overstating the case. The message of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon throughout the entire thing is the scattering and gathering of Israel. Scattering because of Israel's wickedness and gathering because of God's covenant with Israel in spite of their wickedness. He will not give up on them. This is a relentless redemption. Now we could say, but it's already right there in Isaiah. Why not just leave it there? But I think what the Book of Mormon gives us in its presentation of Isaiah's explanation of the scattering and gathering of Israel is it elevates the role of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of the restored church and gospel of Jesus Christ in that gathering of Israel. In other words, the Book of Mormon takes Isaiah's message about gathering and infuses it with Jesus Christ and his church and gospel, that Christ has a role in all of this and that his church does too. And we're the ones playing the part. Now, in chapter 22 of 3 Nephi, he will begin quoting Isaiah 54. Do you remember what he led up to at the end of 21? There's this, this crescendo. The dominoes are beginning to fall. Then, 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 all of these incredible things will happen. The work of the Father is commencing. It commenced before, and it's just picking up speed. That was just the beginning, and now we're running full speed ahead. And how does 22 begin? And then shall that which is written come to pass. So when all of that work is done and the gathering is underway, then Isaiah 54 will begin to be fulfilled. And what's he prophesying in this chapter? It's beautiful. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. You see who he's speaking to? Isaiah is poetry, and the simplest way to approach Hebrew poetry is a repetition of ideas. It's ideas that rhyme, not words and sounds that do. And so it's often this repetition. So sing, O barren, that didst not bear. Here's a woman who cannot have children. Say it again, different words. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. So someone that, was, that cannot have children, someone that never bore children in the Old Testament time period, that was the ultimate curse, the ultimate trial and struggle. You see that in Sarah and Rachel and Hannah. In the New Testament, you see that in Elizabeth. I mean, these women that cannot have children in a culture that rightfully so prioritizes family over anything else. If you think about the Abrahamic covenant, it all boils down to seed. And these women could not have it. And yet, what is the Lord saying to them? Sing. People that never feel like singing. People that have nothing good to sing about. Well, now you do. Because now you have more children than the married wife. You see the reversal of things? The scattered are being gathered. Those that only have things to lament and mourn over. 
now have cause to rejoice? You've got more kids now than people that never suffered the things that you've suffered. In fact, as Isaiah said a few chapters prior to this, you got more kids than you know what to do with. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 49. Jesus doesn't quote it here, but Nephi quoted it way back in 1 Nephi. As Isaiah says, on behalf of these barren women that have now been blessed beyond their imagination, he says, who hath begotten me these? And then he even complains on their behalf that it is too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. It's like, in other words, we've outgrown our accommodations. We've got more kids than we know what to do with. This is the old woman who lived in the shoe, right? I love that verse because it reminds me of my wife. When we were first married, it didn't look like we were going to be able to have children. And that was her biggest worry as a little girl growing up, fearing that she wouldn't be able to have children of her own. And it looked like that nightmare were becoming a reality for her. And month after month passed, she was the Relief Society president in a married student ward at BYU where everybody was getting pregnant. There were children constantly, right? Or at least announcement, oh, we're pregnant. And people would even start saying, oh, it must be in the water. And my wife would be like, give me the water. How, how is this happening and why isn't it happening to me? And it was a hard thing for us both. Well, after seeing specialists and surgery even, the miracle started happening for us. And now we have five children. In fact, when we lived in Tennessee, our house was relatively small, at least for a family of seven. I remember some people commenting on it like, wow, all of you fit into that place? Now, by then we were, it, it felt palatial compared to what we'd had one year before moving. I was teaching a year at BYU and we moved down to Provo and just lived in a basement apartment because we knew it was just gonna be one year before we moved east. And I remember we had two bedrooms in this little basement apartment. For a part of that year, my brother-in-law needed a place to stay. And so we had to move in with us. Originally he was in the living room and then we thought, ah, he needs, a, he needs a place to call his own, needs some privacy. So we gave him the second bedroom and just moved everybody in with us, all the kids. By the time we left, oldest was five, second was four, third was two, and we had a brand new newborn. It was crazy. So six of us in that little room. We had to set up the pack and play in the closet. And that's where the two-year-old would sleep at night. It was the only place that she would fit. I used to joke that, oh, she has an amazing mobile. It's all my white shirts and ties that are just hanging over her that she can fall asleep at night. It was tiny, but we got used to it. And then when we moved to Tennessee, it was like, whoa, three bedrooms? This is amazing. And we lived there for eight years. As the kids grew up and the number five came aboard and it started to feel a little cramped to the point that my wife would say, ah, we just, we just need more space. She wasn't complaining. She was just recognizing our family is much bigger than it used to be. And I loved those complaints because it made me think of Isaiah 49 and years before hearing her lament, will I ever have children of my own? And fast forward and here she is, someone who thought she was a barren woman now saying, who hath begotten me these? In other words, where'd all these kids come from? Our habitation is too narrow because of all the inhabitants. It's exactly how we were feeling and what a blessing to feel it. You understand how scattered Israel will feel when it is gathered home? People that felt forsaken, nothing to sing about, now have songs of joy and praise. In chapter 22, verse 2, Again, the sense of we need more space, then make it. Enlarge the place of thy tent. This is the growth of the kingdom of God upon the earth. As people are being drawn in, coming like doves to the windows, as it said. So enlarge the place of thy tent. 
How are you going to do that? Well, stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not. Just open it up. Now, in a tent, how are you going to do that? You're going to lengthen the cords that are holding up the material. And with these longer cords holding down more weight of the tent itself, you're going to need to strengthen thy stakes as well. Beautiful imagery from Isaiah. And so when we talk about stakes of Zion, this is the tent imagery. And the bigger the tent grows, the longer the cords will need to be stretched and the stronger the tent stakes will have to be to keep it from falling in on itself. This is a good problem to have, but we do need strong stakes for the growth. And not just the growth of the kingdom. Remember, this is placed in a family context. Mothers and children. The promise is theirs in verse 3. Thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. Thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Breaking forth, expanding where they will be. Verse 4, fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. Thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. Shame keeps being brought up. What, third time? And then a fourth with a different word. And shall not remember the reproach of thy youth. And shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Again, he's using family imagery here. Back in verse 1, it was a woman that could not have children. In verse 4, it's a woman whose husband has died and is now a widow. Or if we add in the shame and reproach of thy youth, this could be an unmarried woman. Either way, this is someone almost at the mercy of someone offering to take them in. In the ancient world, women were put in a precarious position at the mercy of the men in their lives. And so to be a widow, to be an unmarried woman, to be a woman that could not have children, where's their hope? Even that word reproach, the way Isaiah 4 begins, suggests that anciently being unmarried was a reproach, a disgrace, a shame, a curse. Here in Isaiah 54, verse 4, being a widow was considered a reproach. In Genesis 30 and in Luke chapter 1, this is Rachel and Elizabeth, being childless was considered a reproach. That's the word that keeps coming up in these verses. And yet here in 22 verse 4, they are being reassured that you have nothing to be ashamed of. There's no reproach about your condition. Why? Verse 5, for thy maker... And not just thy maker, thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. You're not single. You're not widowed. You're not unwanted. You're not abandoned. The Lord of hosts is your husband. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And he loves us. He has betrothed us to him. He has sealed himself. This is a covenant relationship. Now, do you understand where all these children are coming from? Who hath begotten me these? Your husband, the Lord of hosts, the God of the whole earth is his name. Who cares if you were once scorned or forgotten? Who are you married to now? To me, it's an amazing thing, a beautiful thing that two of the three members of the First Presidency, both of whom are widowers, that when they remarried, their wife, in both cases, was someone that was never married before. 
Now, I don't want to minimize at all the heartache of living a long life as a single person. I know a lot of people in that condition. I'm related to some. I teach others. And my heart goes out to them because their heart yearns, longs for companionship. But I have faith that the day will come where they too will break forth into singing, wondering where all these blessings came from that seemed to be so far out of reach or so long in coming. And that in the meantime, the Lord can fill in that hole. Ultimately, he will fill in every hole. We just need faith in the meantime. In verse 6, The Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. So I recognize where you've been. You were a woman forsaken and grieved, but he married you. In verse 7, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Eight, he repeats the idea. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee. For a moment, that's all it was. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. You see the difference between small and great in seven? A small moment of feeling forsaken, but great mercies in the end. You see the difference in eight between a moment and everlasting. A short period where it felt that God had turned away but an everlasting kindness as we recognize his mercy for us. Verse 9, he compares it to the flood of Noah, when a seemingly forsaken world was reassured by a God of mercy that he would prolong humanity's days and provide us a rainbow, light in the midst of storm, a reassurance that God does look down and reach down to us, that as Zion was caught up to heaven, so too it would return someday. The scattered would be gathered. Verse 10, you can bank on it. For the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Notice what he's centering this in. The covenant in ten, gathering in seven, bringing them into an enlarged tent in verse two, expanding the family of the faithful, verse one. In verse 11, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, not comforted, well, look around you now. I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. I will make thy windows of agates, thy gates of carbuncles, all thy borders of pleasant stones. This doesn't sound like a tent anymore, does it? It sounds so much more substantial, so much more permanent. What are we building now? We've moved from tent to temple, wandering nomads to the city of God itself, to Zion with precious stones paving the streets better than anything we could possibly imagine. And best of all, back to the family idea. Verse 13. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. You not only have them, giving birth to them, but you're keeping them safe. They're learning of the Lord. They have peace. How is it possible? Verse 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. Thou shalt not fear and you'll be far from terror, for it shall not come near thee. We live in a world today 
that as you look at the world your children are growing up into, it's hard not to feel fear. In some parts of the world, we worry about even oppression and terror. Peace for our children seems tough to come by. And yet this is the promise of the Lord as he gathers us into Zion. He acknowledges that those dangers exist. In 15, there's a different kind of gathering taking place. They shall surely gather together against thee, not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. I will protect you. I'll keep you from this oppression and terror and fear. And how will I do it? Verse 16, by providing the right weapons. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. Now, on the one hand, it's easy to look at verse 16 and realize, oh, wow, he did create a smith, Joseph Smith himself. And many, I'm sure, would just chalk that up to coincidence. But Smith just happens to be the most common English last name imaginable. But think about that. Why is that the case? Because there are so many Smiths in the world that are trying to make instruments for people. Whether it's a blacksmith or a silversmith, smiths make things. They make instruments to perform work. And Joseph Smith would be included in that, but so would each of us as we fashion ourselves into instruments in the Lord's hands. God is behind all of that work, blowing the coals in the fire. Jesus is working the bellows so that we can make the instruments of his gathering. In fact, so that we can become those instruments ourselves. In verse 17, as for those others that are gathering against us, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Every tongue that shall revile against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I've got your back because you're following me. I'll go before you. I'll be your rearward. You are encircled about in the arms of safety. No weapon against you will prosper. I have all my smiths hard at work. The forge is bright. We are burning out the impurities. God is creating instruments for his hands. Chapter 23 then continues the story as Jesus reminds them once again, you've got to study these things. What I started teaching in 16 before you got confused. And then I came back and picked up in 20 and I'm taught through 21 and 22. In 23 verse 1, now behold, I say unto you that ye ought to search these things. And in fact, if my gentle invitation isn't enough, let me strengthen the language a little bit. Yea, a commandment I give unto you, that ye search these things diligently. For great are the words of Isaiah. I don't know if there's another book of scripture that gets that kind of recommendation from the Lord himself. Often you see on the back of novels or books, you'll see a oh, gripping or page turner, and they'll say who said it. Well, if you had a paperback copy of the book of Isaiah, on the back it would say in big print, great. Jesus. The Lord is vouching for the greatness of the words of Isaiah and commanding us to not just peruse them, but to search them and to do so diligently. I love the adjective. I love the verb. I love the adverb there. And I love the source behind all of this grammar, Jesus Christ himself. The adjective, great. The verb, search. The adverb, diligently. 
Isaiah deserves our effort. He explains more as to why in verse 2. For surely he spake as touching all things concerning my people, which are of the house of Israel. You want to read about yourself? Then read Isaiah. Therefore, it must needs be that he must speak also to the Gentiles, since it's going to be those Gentiles that are going to need to bring the fullness of the gospel back to the Jews when all of this role reversal takes place. Verse 3, all things that he spake have been and shall be, even according to the words which he spake. Again, high commendation that his prophecies have been and yet will be fulfilled. In verse 4, don't just leave Isaiah alone. Here's another added second witness. Give heed to my words, write the things which I have told you, and according to the time and the will of the Father, they shall go forth unto the Gentiles. Again, that's the sign. It's go time. When the Book of Mormon comes forth, we have early on in the Book of Mormon, it was Nephi, Jacob, and Isaiah as the three witnesses to convey these truths. By the end, it becomes a new set of three witnesses. Jesus, Isaiah, and Mormon as he compiles all of these things together. What's their collective message? Come unto Christ, the great gatherer of Israel. In verse 5, Whosoever will hearken unto my words, and repenteth, and is baptized, the same shall be saved. Search the prophets, all of them, not just Isaiah, for many there be that testify of these things. There's a whole cloud of witnesses throughout the Bible. Search them. Verse 6, Jesus himself isn't done searching. He first expounds all the scriptures which they had received. This would be a mind-blowing experience, kind of like what the disciples on the road to Emmaus had in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus takes all their scripture and points out throughout it all, these are the things that are testifying of me. Well, here, expounding all the scripture, and then adding at the end of 6, Behold, other scriptures I would that ye should write, that ye have not. You see, if Lehi left about 600 B.C., then that's the natural cutoff for the brass plates. And I have taught my people some amazing things since then. Some things that you need. In fact, come to think of it, I've taught you more directly some amazing things. And I'm not sure if you took the time to record those either. So in verse 7, he turns to Nephi and says, Bring forth the record which you have kept. Nephi brings it and lays it before the Lord. And Jesus begins to look at it. Can you imagine the pressure you'd feel if Jesus asked to see your scriptures? Would he flip through the pages and... Would he wonder, have, have you, do you ever read any of this? Is there any evidence that you have treasured and cherished my words? I wonder if he'd look at mine and go, wait, I see a lot marked, but why didn't you mark this? It's one of the best things I ever said. And I, I want him to see that I have valued, treasured his words. But here he looks at Nephi's copy and then says in verse 9, wait, I told Samuel the Lamanite to testify that others would rise from the grave when I did didn't he prophesy of that? Was it not so, he says? We saw these verses when we studied Samuel the Lamanite a few weeks ago. But here, Nephi's having that moment and going, oh, uh-oh, uh, yes, it's exactly so. Verse 10, Samuel prophesied, just as you said, and those words were fulfilled, just like he said. And then the Lord's more searching question, verse 11, how be it that ye have not written this thing? You'd think that saints arising from the grave would be a journal entry. You'd think that such a miraculous prophecy and such an incredible fulfillment would be noteworthy. Why didn't you write it down? I'm not much of a journal keeper. My wife's amazing. I think she's second only to Wilfred Woodruff 
I've sometimes asked her, can you please write something about me as you're recording things, just so that our posterity knows that you were married? That's an area I do need to be better at, to record, to give us a chance to remember the experiences we've had with God. Well, in verse 12, Nephi remembers that this was never written, and so Jesus commands him to rectify that, write it down. And so it was. And then in 14, when Jesus had expounded all the scriptures in one, and that one focal point of all scripture, the burden of all scripture, is Jesus himself. So to expound all of this in one, his role in the Father's plan, he then commanded them that they should teach the things which he had expounded unto them. He's multiplied their loaves and fishes. He now wants them to start spreading the word, or like the sacrament. He blesses it and gives it to them. They partake and are filled. Now make sure everyone else gets the same blessing. And then chapter 24, as he promised, there are some scriptures that you have not yet received. Let me give them to you. Now he's been quoting Isaiah, he's been quoting Micah, he's been quoting Habakkuk. What he's going to do now at length, Malachi, these are the last two chapters in the Old Testament as we have it compiled today. Words that Malachi recorded after Lehi had already left Jerusalem. And it's interesting of all the post-Jeremiah things that Jesus could have quoted, he wants the Nephites to have these two chapters. Why? Let's try to figure it out. 24 verse 1, he commanded them that they should write the words which the Father had given unto Malachi, which he should tell unto them. It came to pass that after they were written, he expounded them. I wish we had more of that. What was Jesus' explanation of these chapters? I guess that's left to us to figure out, not with the second member of the Godhead, but with the third, trying to find the Holy Ghost's guidance on understanding these passages. But here's how Malachi 3 begins. Thus said the Father unto Malachi, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. What's he getting at in this chapter? I'll send my messenger. By the way, you know how to say my messenger in Hebrew? Malachi. It's a play on the prophet's own name. I want my messenger, Malachi, to prophesy of the coming of my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. In the New Testament, that could be John the Baptist. In this final dispensation, that could be Joseph Smith and all the other Smiths, last name regardless, that are preparing the way for Jesus Christ. We are all among those messengers, preparing the way before him, making straight the ways of the Lord, casting up a highway in the desert. Why? Because the Lord whom we seek will suddenly come. And where will he come? To the threshing floor, to the garner, to the temple. We are seeking him there. And who does he claim to be as he comes suddenly? I am the messenger. I had a messenger come before me, but I too am a messenger myself, and I'm the messenger of the covenant. You delight in me. I delight in you. In fact, it's the Father that delights in you, which is why he's sending me with a reminder of his covenant, his word. I am that word. Now, what will it take for us to be prepared for that great covenant-keeping day? Verse 2, who may abide the day of his coming? 
He's coming suddenly, right? Who shall stand when he appeareth? Amidst a day of earthquakes in diverse places and peoples whose faith is being shaken all around us, who will abide? Who will stand? The book of Revelation asks similar questions. The answer is suggested by the next few phrases. For he, this messenger of the covenant, is like a refiner's fire. He's like fuller's soap. Hmm. So who will abide? Who will be able to stand? Well, evidently people in need of cleansing. He's coming to burn away the dross. No wonder he's using smiths and working the bellows himself. He is fuller's soap. We have stains that need to be lifted. Verse 3, he shall sit as a refiner, as a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi. He will purge them as gold and silver. These are goldsmiths, silversmiths purging the sons of Levi, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, who are these sons of Levi? What is their offering in righteousness? Is this animal sacrifice being renewed? Well, an answer comes much later in Joseph Smith's ministry, in the Doctrine and Covenants, as he is learning from the Lord about the redemption of the dead. Near the end of section 128 in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a revelatory letter that Joseph Smith writes to the saints, he quotes this passage from Malachi about the great day of the Lord at hand, about fuller soap and refiner's fire, about purifying the sons of Levi, purging them so they can offer an offering in righteousness. All of that is straight out of Malachi, but then the Lord explains it through the prophet. On the heels of quoting it again, Joseph then writes, let us therefore, so therefore, consequently, because of the Lord's promise that he would purify and purge the sons of Levi, therefore, as a church and a people and as Latter-day Saints, let us offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. We're the ones to do it. Let us present in his holy temple, when it is finished, a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. You see, there are other passages in Scripture that speak of gathered Israel as a gift we present to God. Well, here that gift includes those on the other side of the veil, the records of our dead. That is the offering in righteousness that we can present to the Lord. At least it is one of them. I find it fascinating that whenever a head of state comes and visits the First Presidency in Salt Lake City, what is the gift they typically give them? their genealogy, a book containing the records of their family tree. And in a beautiful parallel way, when the king of kings returns, we'll give him a similar gift. Remember what Jesus says to the Father? None of those whom thou hast given me have I lost. Well, we need to be able to say the same thing to Christ. Here's the book. Here's the family and everyone can come home. That is an offering of righteousness worthy of the Lord's acceptation. But it takes purified sons and daughters of Levi to be able to offer it to the Lord. Who are these sons of Levi? I quoted last time the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And it talks about those who obtain and receive these priesthoods become the sons of Moses and of Aaron. What tribe was that? Sons of Levi and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. Again, he said that earlier in these chapters. This is who you are. 
You are the sons of Levi. Allow the Lord to come into your life and refine you, purify you, wash you clean so that you can participate in the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. Verse 4, then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. As in the days of old, as in former years, good times have returned. Verse 5, I will come near to you in judgment. And then he makes a long list of things and people and sins that he is coming down in judgment upon. It's interesting that it doesn't just seem to be a generalized wickedness or disobedience. So much of what he says are sins against other people. That's where adulterers and false swearers come in. Or elements of social justice, oppressing the hireling and his wages, oppressing the widow and the fatherless. Remember, there's no more widows. I'm their husband. I will raise up seed. You'll rejoice and sing. So how dare you oppress them? You who turn aside the stranger, I will come down in judgment upon you. These tend to be sins against the second great commandment, even more than sins against the first. And if anything will keep us from gathering Israel, it might be those lapses of second commandment compassion. If we don't have an eye to see the suffering of the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless, the stranger, the marginalized, behold your little ones, Jesus said back in chapter 17 where he was trying to pre-enact the gathering of Israel. Bring the poor, bring the suffering, bring the weak and the wounded, bring the little children and behold them. Help them come to me. We have to be purified of our neglect of others. That's the fourth of the fourfold missions of the church. The one President Monson elevated to care for them temporally, physically, in order to prepare to provide for them spiritually with the gospel as it's been restored. I think this sets up, puts in context what he's about to shift to now. Now in verse 7, he, he chastised those of them gently, even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances. You have not kept them. Return unto me, he pleads. I will return unto you. But notice what they say in response. End of verse 7. But ye say, Wherein shall we return? It almost becomes laughable when you actually read the entire book of Malachi. How many times the Lord will say something and then kind of speak on behalf of them and say, oh, but you say. It's like, I say this. Oh, and then you respond. And so I'll respond to that. But then you say, and I'll say, and then you say. It, it's really fascinating the way he does it. Here's the first one here. I say, return. And you say, well, what do you mean return? Well, we've never left. Wherein shall we return? How, what do you mean come back to you? And he specifies in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, so there he is again, wait, 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 what? Where, wherein have we robbed thee? You see this back and forth? And the Lord responds to that. Where have you robbed me? In tithes and offerings. This is a really famous passage. Missionaries always teach this when we teach about tithing and fast offerings. But do you see the context of it? Among people who have forgotten the poor who have oppressed the hireling, that have turned aside strangers. And inasmuch as ye have not done it unto the one or the least of these, my brethren, ye have not done it unto me. This is a sin against the second great commandment that does constitute a sin against the first. So return, 
come back to me. This is like the, the wealthy that were casting in their, of their abundance into the treasury when the widow could only give her might. And yet they probably thought, oh, we're, we're connecting vertically just beautifully. Look how righteous we are. But neglecting the poor, that's something you have to repent of. That's something that has driven you away from me and that you can return to me if you'll simply change. Change what? Quit robbing me. What do you mean, rob you? Quit robbing from the poor. Quit turning a blind eye to those in desperate need. Give upward, there's tithing. Give outward, there's offerings. Allow the Lord to do his work. Remember we saw that verse a little earlier when he was quoting, was it, was it uh, Micah? About everything being consecrated to the Lord? That it all becomes his? so that he can distribute, so that he can lift, so he can bless the world. It's exactly what is being done with tithes and offerings in our day. And notice the robbery is not just tithing. It's a robbery in offerings too. We usually associate tithing with the strict one. Well, there's 10%. But offerings are much more, well, just do whatever you feel so you can be generous. But he associates them both with robbery. He then says in 9, you are cursed with a curse. You've brought it upon yourself. That's the way curses always work. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. So what's the solution? Verse 10, famous verses we're all familiar with. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Why? To make the church richer? No. That there may be meat in my house. What's God going to do with meat? He doesn't need it. But he knows we do. No wonder he calls it his storehouse, not just his house, my storehouse. So there's a place for you to come. The way the law of consecration is taught in the Doctrine and Covenants is magnificent as it's scattered throughout so many different chapters. We keep coming back to it and as we just read the Doctrine and Covenants and see it pop up over and over and over again to develop our own talents, to multiply our blessings so that we can contribute more to the storehouse that it might become the common property of all. What keeps us from doing it? What tempts us to rob God? I don't know. Sometimes it's a matter of, but I need it. I need it more than he does. I'll never make it without that 10%, without that generous fast offering. Well, the Lord turns that on its head with the next phrase where he says, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. Prove me. We always think of tithing as a test for us. That's not the way the Lord explains it. He considers tithing a test, yes, but a test of him, where we get to prove him, not him proving us. Wait, wait, we're putting the Lord to the test? Oh, yeah. To see if he can help us survive on 90% or less. To see if we can survive based on faith instead of putting all our trust in the arm of flesh. That's what he says. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, to see if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Test me. Try me. Prove me. See if I will let you starve. Missionaries should feel no fear in teaching the law of tithing because God is true to his word and it is God that is being tested not the poor person you happen to be teaching it to. Now, how will the Lord open the windows of heaven? I wouldn't presume to limit the possibilities. He can do it in so many ways. Sometimes it is an increase. 
Sometimes all of a sudden we get a better job or a raise or just something comes into our lives and we find ourselves prospering financially more after we paid our tithing than ever we prospered before. Sometimes it's not an increase of credits, but a decrease of debits. That's often how it's been in my family. In verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Your vine will not cast her fruit before the time in the fields, saith the Lord of hosts. So for some, there may be more gain. For others, there may be less loss. I'm amazed sometimes at how long my beater car will just keep running. Or things that just to stretch a dollar where it seems like it's to the ripping point, and yet it covers our needs. Prove him. He's as good as his word. I remember teaching an investigator on my mission about the law of tithing, and they weren't so sure about it. But they came to church the next Sunday, and our elders quorum president, who was an incredible, humble person, he worked for the sewage company, pumping backed-up sewer drains. Just salt of the earth, wonderful man, convert to the church himself. He was fast in testimony, and he stood up and bore his testimony of the law of tithing. said it was a hard month. We didn't have the devourer rebuked for our sake this past month. My wife was sick, and all the money that we were going to use on food went on doctor bills and medicine instead. And all I had left at the end of the month was my tithing money. And I prayed and thought, well, surely, Heavenly Father, you wouldn't expect me to pay tithing. So, I mean, you could have rebuked the devourer for my sake. You could have blessed us, and my wife didn't have to get sick. And then we would have had money to pay for food instead of for medical. And then we could have given tithing money for the church like normal. But this wonderful, humble convert said, but I remember what the missionaries taught me when I joined the church, and I trusted. And so I took my tithing money and allowed it to remain tithing money. I gave it to God. I proved him, and God passed the test. He didn't use all this scriptural language, but this is exactly what he was saying. Because he said, out of the blue, my mom came to visit. She just showed up from the United States, flew down to Puerto Rico to pay us a visit. And she had a massive suitcase. I thought, well, how long are you staying, Mom? How many clothes do you need? And she opened it. No, it's not clothes. It was food. Who packs a suitcase full of food in New York and then flies to San Juan? Well, she did. Not knowing that her children and grandchildren would be living off of that suitcase full of food for the rest of the month. That's exactly what he said. He was just up there laughing, going, we're still eating out of the suitcase. I remember my investigator turning to me and just nodding agreement with the blessings that flow into our lives when we sacrifice and put God and our neighbor first. It is a visible blessing that will cause verse 12 to occur when all nations will call you blessed. For ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, he's not done there. That's one issue. But then he says in verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. And of course, as usual, they object. Every time he says something, oh, objection. Says something, oh, objection. Notice the end of 13. Yet ye say, so I've just gently said, you know what? You said some hard things against me. And you chime back in and object and say, well, what do you mean? What have we spoken against thee? Just like they said, what do you mean we've robbed you? Where? How? Well, here's the hard, stout words you've said. Verse 14. Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. 
What doth it profit that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. You see these stout words that they're complaining against God? Why are we even trying to do what's right? It never pays off. It's vanity to serve. What's the point of keeping the commandments? There's no profit there. But look around. The proud seem to be doing great. They're, they're happy. Those that are working wick, wickedness, they're set up. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to the bad? You get a sense why the Lord would take this personally? Are we questioning his judgment? Are we questioning his awareness of us? Are we starting to second guess? Do you really open the windows of heaven? I don't know. And if you do, is it just kind of scatter the blessings willy-nilly and half the time they happen to land on the, on the wicked more than the righteous? Well, notice the Lord's response in 16 and 17. He says, Then they that feared the Lord, those that obeyed him, those that trusted in spite of the difficulty, they spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened, and he heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. You see, this chapter begins by hinting at one book of remembrance, the records of our dead. It ends speaking of another one more directly. This one, the Lord keeps. This is the book of life. This is his memory of those that have been suffering. Remember what we started with. Uh, there are people that feel forsaken. That's Isaiah 54. He remembers. You haven't, but you're not a widow. You're not an orphan. You haven't been forsaken. You're not barren. It's a little season I've turned away. But everlasting kindness is yours because I remember you. I've written it all down. You are not forgotten. And so your sufferings and the prosperity of the wicked, those are temporary conditions. I do play the long game. Trust the ending. We're not there yet. In verse 17, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day, that future day, wait for it, when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. That's the relationship I'm recording in my book of remembrance. You, my sons and daughters, you who are serving me at times when it seems like I am completely unaware, I do notice. I never forget even those who feel forgotten. Verse 18, the final promise in this chapter, then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Right now, it's hard to tell. Tough to tell the difference between wheat and tares. Tough to gauge who's the righteous and who's the wicked just when you look at the size of somebody's house or bank account. But someday, Someday you will know and discern between those who remembered God and are remembered of him compared to those that rejected him. What we can't do in the meantime is forget God or forget our neighbor. That seems to be what chapter 3 of Malachi is all about. And it leads in beautifully to chapter 4 of Malachi, which is 3 Nephi 25. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh 
shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Remember what Joseph Smith said, Noah came before the flood, I have come before the fire. Jesus in the New Testament talked about a fire that was already kindled, that would spread across the earth. The Spirit of God like a fire is burning, the earth cleansed as if by fire at the second coming. This purging of the dross, this refiner's fire that is purifying us. So this fire bespeaks purification, sanctification. It also bespeaks harvest time. Remember the great verses in the Doctrine and Covenants early on? For the field is white already to harvest is how we end that. And yet in section 31 of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a surprise. He says to preach from this time forth, reap in the field which is white already to be burned. Wow. Are we accelerating towards harvest time that quickly? And notice what's being burned, the stubble. That's what's left in a field after harvest time. I mean, my youngest daughter loves stubble on my face. She wants me to grow out my beard. Sorry, Monet, that's not much of an option for me. But stubble on the earth, the wheat has been gathered into sheaves to be taken to the threshing floor and from then into the garner. The tares are gathered in bundles also and what is left of the field is just the stubble. Everything else has been cut off and it's just the, the base of all of these stalks of grain and it's ready to be burned. That's how the allegory of the olive tree ends in Jacob chapter 5. Now that burning, that scorched earth, is what happens to the proud and wicked. But in verse 2, unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. That's a great mental image. A calf growing up in the stall, cared for, provided for, nourished, protected, you're not out in the wild on your own. The Lord is caring for you. The Son of Righteousness is rising with healing in his wings. He's spread them forth. He's trying to gather us under those wings. The wicked in three are the ones trodden down under the soles of his feet, whereas the righteous get a different view of those feet. Beautiful upon the mountains. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb. For all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, obedience is still key. Verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is where we perk up. These are famous, famous verses. Malachi 4, 35-25, Doctrine and Covenants 2, Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith History. All of our standard works include this promise. This is one of the passages that the angel Moroni quoted to Joseph Smith that night when he first let him know that God had a mission for him to perform and it would be part of this mission. The way that Moroni quotes it is different than what we have in Malachi. For that version, study section 2 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's incredible. Those changes are magnificent. An emphasis on priesthood and the promises of God. We'll have to study that next year in the Doctrine and Covenants. But here... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Yet another messenger I will send before my face as I come suddenly to my temple. It's exactly what happened at the Kirtland Temple in 1836. 
that Moses came, there's verse 4. Elijah came, there's verse 5. Jesus came, that's chapter 3 of Malachi. The Lord whom we seek coming suddenly to his temple. And what's the purpose of Elijah's return? Verse 6, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now do you see why all this family imagery in Isaiah 54 of the barren and the abandoned, the single, the widow, the forsaken, the ashamed, rejoicing, singing with joy over the children that they have. Hearts are turning. Mothers and fathers to sons and daughters turning all because of the promises that have been given to our fathers and the fulfillment of those promises that are happening in our day. Without it, the earth is cursed. It's utterly wasted is the Moroni's version. Or as we might say, what an utter waste of an earth. If one of the main purpose of even coming here was to establish families that could then become eternal. Now do you see at the end of verse 1 the kind of tree that is being left in this burned out field? It leaves them neither root nor branch. Well, in the context of hearts of fathers and children turning, what kind of tree is that? This is a family tree which is meant to reach down through our ancestors and up beyond into our descendants. That's the purpose of the earth. That is God's covenant. That is the gathering of all the family home. There's the offering in righteousness, King of Kings. Here's the book, the record of our dead, our offering in righteousness. Without it, what was meant to be a forest of family trees becomes a scorched earth of nothing but burned out logs, single, individual, isolated, no roots, no branches no fulfilling the measure of their creation on this earth. What a waste of an earth. We have that opportunity. We can take advantage of it to turn hearts, to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven, to seal the family of humanity so that we can all come home. The, you understand what the Lord is saying here? It's not just a matter of, oh, you got to love the ending of the Old Testament. Real cliffhanger. Promise that Elijah is going to return. And you missed it. You left a little too early. So let me just, I'll just kind of cut to the chase and I'll give you the last two chapters. The rest, eh, minor prophets. Who cares? No. These are things that the Father commanded Malachi to write and that I need you to record as well. I care about the most important things. That's why I'm commanding you to search Isaiah, because he talked about you, house of Israel, the role that you would play. That's why I called Micah and Habakkuk to the stand, so they could bear additional witness of the gathering that I'm a part of. Why do you think I wanted Samuel the Lamanite's prophecy recorded here, so that you'd never forget that I keep my word, and I vindicate the prophets, and resurrection, atonement, is part of that. That gathering is part of it. That caring for people on this side of the veil, temporally and spiritually, and gathering those on the other side of the veil, all of this is part of the great gathering of Israel. And we are doing it now. It's go time. The Book of Mormon's come forth. That was the sign, right? I think it's also worth pointing out that what does the Lord know 
What has been the cause of so much devastation and destruction throughout Nephite history? And what will yet prove the ultimate demise of the Nephite civilization? Pride, materialism, robbing God and robbing neighbor, wanting to see the fruits of our righteousness pay dividends right now instead of trusting in the ultimate blessings that will come from God. It's this pride cycle that leads them to neglect the poor and to abandon God. And what's the solution? Be obedient to God. Be generous to others. Turn your hearts upward and outward. Become one. All my children. That's the message in Malachi 3 and 4 that they needed. And I think it's also important to realize that lots has changed, right? Remember, that's their big concern in 3 Nephi 15. What do we do with the law of Moses? Is the entire Old Testament now obsolete? And the Lord here is saying, you know what? Some things I need to make crystal clear. Bridge the divide. They weren't just mosaic things. This isn't something that's old and done and passed away and you don't need to worry about it anymore. Remember, the covenant is one of those things. Obedience to my commandments is one of those things. Now we even know that Malachi is meant to bridge the gap, that it applies post-atonement just as much as it did pre. That it's not just some mosaic thing that we pay tithing and give offerings. No, caring for others and making sacrifices for God is something that precedes the law of Moses and post-dates its fulfillment in Christ. I've even had some people contact me who have left the church over tithing, saying, oh, it's Old Testament stuff. We don't need to do that anymore. Well, the Lord's invocation of Malachi, post-fulfillment of the law of Moses, I would say refutes that. This remains one way for us to prove the Lord, to sacrifice, to open the windows of heaven, to prove to ourselves that the things of the world do not have such a hold upon us that we can let them go and lay hold of the things of God. Now, last chapter for the week is chapter 26. And I love what the Lord does to begin it. When Jesus had told these things, he expounded them. You notice how many times that word has come up already? Every time he's quoting Isaiah or other scriptures and expounding. Scripture deserves explanation. That's why I love the chance to not just read these verses, but to talk about them, to take them apart and put them back together, to cross-reference and analyze and synthesize and try to make sense of what are you saying here. Scripture deserves to be expounded, and no one does it better than Jesus himself. He expounded all things unto them, both great and small. I love that too. As one who has sometimes been accused of spending too much time on little details. Well... I have it on good authority that it's not just the great things that deserve to be expounded, but the small things too. Big picture items like the scattering and gathering of Israel, but tiny details like the placement of a jot or tittle. There's power in both the big and the small. Verse 2, he saith, These scriptures which ye had not with you, the Father commanded that I should give unto you. It was wisdom in him that they should be given unto future generations. Again, some things need to bridge the gap. It's not just a matter of, well, we were going to get the Bible someday. Even Nephi saw that, that the book would come forth. Well, no, some things need to be reproduced on both continents, in both sets of scripture. Second witness that certain principles apply across the board. In verse 3, the expounding continues. 
He expounded all things, even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory. So this is not just looking back. This is looking forward, and he's explaining it all. Yea, even all things which should come upon the face of the earth, even until the elements should melt with fervent heat, and the earth should be wrapped together as a scroll, and the heavens and the earth should pass away. Man, I wish I could have been there for that institute class. As the Lord is expounding everything from creation until the earth receives its paradisiacal glory. And beyond even that, verse 4, even unto the great and last day when all people and all kindreds and all nations and tongues shall stand before God to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. 5, he says a little bit more about that. Good go resurrection of eternal life, evil to the resurrection of damnation. It's a parallel based on mercy and justice and holiness in Christ. But you see what he's saying? I want to give you the whole thing, the big picture. Explain it all, start to finish. See where you are. God's love, his covenant, my grace, my role in that covenant goes from start to finish. Please trust that we know what we're doing. I can explain it all. Now, that is so much more than the explanation we got in the Book of Mormon. And Mormon apologizes for that. Verse 6, there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach unto the people. I wish I had more than one percent, but what we have is incredible. In fact, what we have might be sufficient, at least to serve some of its purposes. Because notice what he says in verse 8, these things have I written, which are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people, just the 1%. And I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people from the Gentiles, according to the words which Jesus has spoken. Now he's channeling what he's been talking about already, right? That the gospel's role reversal, first, last, last, first. This is going to go to the Gentiles. Now it's go time. And the Gentiles are going to bring it back to the house of Israel. That's what's going to affect the gathering. Then the Father's work really commences and we're often running towards the millennium. Full speed ahead. But there's more to it. Not just a matter of this is what you need to preserve so you can get it to them. But this is what you need to keep out. And there's a purpose for that too. Verse 9. When they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should have first, to try their faith. And if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. On the other hand, if you will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. This is something that Nephi, the first Nephi, realized way back in 2 Nephi 28, that God gives line upon line and precept upon precept. Why? Partly, it's not just the gradual dissemination of truth. It's not just drink from the fire hose and consume it all right now, but it's a test of faith. What will you do with what you already have? In that passage, 2 Nephi 28, 30, if you're open to receive more, then I'll give you more. But if you're not open to more, then I'll actually take away what you have. There's no standing still. There's no static. You're either progressing or you're sliding back. Remember we talked about that back in Alma chapter 12, that those with a soft heart receive the greater portion of the word until they know it in full. And those with a hardened heart receive the lesser portion until they know nothing. This is all crescendo or decrescendo based on what we do with whatever small portion we have. You see, verse 11, Mormon himself was about to give us more. 
I wish he could have gotten away with some of it. I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi. There's records of that somewhere. But the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. That's third shelf patience required. I'll try your faith. I'll keep some things up on the top, not just so that I can have things to move down later, but to allow you to develop faith that that movement will occur. You see, God wants our faith in some ways even more than he wants our absolute knowledge because it's faith that really develops something within us. And so God himself, I'm amazed at his restraint that he can walk this razor's edge of giving us just enough evidence, visiting us with assurances, as the war chapters say, just enough to confirm our faith, but not so much evidence to obviate our faith. To obviate means to make obsolete. It's like it, it's no longer needed. And if God gives us too much evidence, we saw this at the beginning of 3rd Nephi when the signs came and all of a sudden, well, now you can't believe. Your opportunity for faith has ended as it has been absorbed in this perfect knowledge that has come upon you. Take advantage of your days of doubt. It's what allows you to develop faith. Eventually, you won't have that opportunity. It'll just be too obvious. You will only know. And so here the Lord is, wait, wait, wait. Explain this much, 1%, that'll be just enough for them to see the big picture. My role in it, their role in it, see what they're supposed to be doing with the gathering of Israel, the turning of hearts, and then leave it. Yes, there's so much more that I want to share, and I will, line upon line, precept upon precept, as they exercise faith. But in the meantime, give them a chance to develop it makes me so grateful for what I do know, and in a weird way, grateful for the things that I don't. The first bundle fortifies my faith. The second bundle, the absent one, is what allows me to have faith in the first place. And that's good enough for me. Now, verse 12, I, Mormon, do write the things which have been commanded me of the Lord. And then I'll make an end of my sayings and write other things that have been commanded he says in 13 that Jesus truly taught the people for the space of three days. After that, he continued to show himself unto them often. And when he did, what did he do? He did break bread oft and bless it and give it unto them. Every time we get to be with Jesus, through his word, through his servants, through service in his name, it's a chance for us to renew our covenants, to find communion in Christ. In verse 14, he taught, he ministered unto the children of the multitude of whom hath been spoken. You see, chapter 17 was to bless them. Now in 26, he's continuing to teach them, to minister to them. And then notice what he does. And he did loose their tongues, and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things, even greater than he had revealed unto the people. He loosed their tongues that they could utter. Uh, yet one more example of Christ's great humility. I will allow you to teach each other even better things, greater things than I've ever taught. Remember what he said to his apostles in John 14? He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my Father. It's similar to what he said about the Holy Ghost. I must leave so the Spirit may come. 
Well, I also need to leave so that you can begin to flourish outside of my shadow. I want you to be able to teach each other, to participate. All I've been doing here is blowing the coals. I'm trying to make instruments out of you. I will loose your tongue, open your mouth, and you will teach even greater things than I did. Verse 15 then, after he ascended into heaven the second time that he had shown himself unto them, after he had gone unto the Father, after having healed all their sick and their lame, and opened the eyes of their blind, and unstopped the ears of the deaf, and even had done all manner of cures among them, raised a man from the dead, had shown forth his power unto them. He ascended unto the Father. Remember, not everyone was there in chapter 17. Chapter 19 describes them all night long, noising abroad the news, so that they can all labor exceedingly all night long to be in the place where Jesus would come. Well, he came and he taught and he taught and he taught. And he keeps coming and going and teaching and ministering and performing the sacrament. But also, he healed them. Every last one of them. He healed all their sick. That same beautiful possessive pronoun we saw in chapter 17. And then in 16, on the morrow, Jesus is gone now. But he has left them with little replacements. The multitude gathered themselves together, and they both saw and heard these children. Yea, even babes did open their mouths and utter marvelous things. Things so marvelous that they were forbidden that they should not any man write them. Didn't we see that back in chapter 17 also? Things too wonderful for us. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man. Well... Those kinds of profound, unutterable truths are now being shared by babies, children. Amazing what happens when God opens a mouth, especially if we'll simply have ears to hear. Now in 17, those 12 disciples that Jesus had chosen, from that time forth, they baptize, they teach as many as will come, they grant them the gift of the Holy Ghost, they're filled with it. In 18, many of them saw and heard unspeakable things which are not lawful to be written. 19, they taught and ministered one to another. They had all things common among them, every man dealing justly one with another. Sounds like they took Malachi's words seriously. Not robbing God and not robbing from one another. Hearts turning, becoming one. Isn't that what the at one is for? Isn't this what Zion is supposed to be? Add 20 to the mix. They did do all things even as Jesus had commanded them. I think they qualify. Remember Enoch's definition of Zion in Moses chapter 7? The Lord called his people Zion. Why? What had they done to qualify themselves for that incredible title? For they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. Don't you see all of that? In verse 19 and 20, their oneness, their obedience, their care for one another, physically as well as spiritually. Verse 21, that's who Jesus considers his church. Those who are thus baptized in his name are called the church of Christ. And for us to truly qualify for that name, as we're doing all this extra work to try to reclaim it, are we doing likewise? Are we teaching and ministering? Are we becoming one? Are we consecrating so that there is enough and to spare 
for all of our brothers and sisters? Are we obeying the commandments of God? Are we participating in the work of gathering on both sides of the veil? It's go time. The Book of Mormon is exhibit A, that it is full speed ahead until the coming of Christ and even beyond it. Millennial reign, paradisical glory, celestial kingdom. It's all spelled out. I remember going on splits with the missionaries when I lived in Tennessee. Amazing, wonderful Bible-believing. This was the Bible Belt, after all, evangelical Christians. And we met a man, his name was Eddie, and he was awesome. He knew the scriptures like nobody's business, especially the Old Testament, which surprised me. He loved it. And the missionaries were kind of taken aback by him, and I just was soaking it in. And I said, Eddie, forget Eddie. I should call you Apollos. He's like, really? I said, yeah, you remember in the book of Acts? that Apollos knew the scriptures so well, he just needed to see how they all connected to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul provided. The rest of the story, the continuation, the New Testament, that everything the Old Testament was pointing to and leading up to has come. The Messiah has been among us. And I just felt to testify to this wonderful man, it's happening. All the anticipation is now into fulfillment. The Lord, it's, it's happening. The Lord is doing his work. He is gathering Israel and you can be a part of it, Apollos. It was a beautiful experience. It just seemed to, to capture our imagination or the attention of us both. It reminds me, section 113, Joseph Smith is asking a bunch of questions about Isaiah. That's comforting. Even he had some confusion there, wondered what things meant. And in section 113, he asks the Lord for some clarification on a few interesting passages, some of which, by the way, would have been on his mind since, as a 17-year-old boy, his sleep was interrupted by an angel. Now, in section 113, verse 7, Elias Higby chimes in, and I love this. It's like he's seen Joseph have this conversation with God, like, wait, God's willing to do Q&A over Scripture? Whoa. Joseph, um, can I slide one in? Can you sneak this question in? I've always wondered about it. And his came from chapter 52, which we just studied with the help of Jesus Christ. His question was, what does it mean in Isaiah 52, 1, where the Lord says, put on thy strength, O Zion? What people had Isaiah reference to? Who's this talking about? And the Lord's answer is profound and personal. He had reference to those whom God should call in the last days, who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel. And to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she has lost. So what's that all about? It's the gathering of Israel. It's the redemption of Zion. So live up to your privileges. Exercise God's power. In verse 9, he asks another question. Well, then what does it mean that Zion should loose herself from the bands of her neck? Again, from Isaiah 52. And the Lord's response, we are to understand that the scattered remnants are exhorted to return to the Lord from whence they have fallen, which if they do, the promise of the Lord is that he will speak to them or give them revelation. The bands of her neck are the curses of God upon her or the remnant of Israel in their scattered condition among the Gentiles from bondage to deliverance, from scattering to gathering. That's what the Lord's been talking about through this entire ministry in 3 Nephi. It's what Isaiah taught 
throughout his entire book. It's what every Book of Mormon prophet who claimed and gra grabbed hold of Isaiah's words were trying to convey. God has not abandoned us. We have not been forsaken. He is bringing us home. One last relevant passage from section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants. For Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness. Her borders must be enlarged. Her stakes must be strengthened. Yea, verily I say unto you, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. Are we doing that? Some of my favorite hymns are the earliest ones in the hymn book. For me, architecture and music were two things that escaped the apostasy. There is such power in some of the oldest hymns we have. Things from St. Francis of Assisi and Bernard de Clairvaux, amazing things. Fast forward a little bit, and, but still keep it old. And Charles Wesley, a great Methodist hymnist, gives us some beautiful, beautiful things. Well, including the earliest saints, the hymns that they wrote, it was go time for them, and they sensed it. It, it was, the, the sign had come forth, the Book of Mormon was now in their hands, hot off the presses, and God's work had begun. The gathering was underway. Listen to this from Edward Partridge, first bishop of the church, included in the first LDS hymn book. Imagine this first generation of gathered saints singing this song. Remember that from Isaiah? Lifting up their voice and sing when they see eye to eye as the Lord is gathering Zion. Listen to this song. Let Zion in her beauty rise. Her light begins to shine. Ere long her king will rend the skies, majestic and divine. The gospel spreading through the land, a people to prepare to meet the Lord and Enoch's band triumphant in the air. Ye heralds, sound the golden trump to earth's remotest bound. Go spread the news from pole to pole in all the nations round that Jesus in the clouds above with hosts of angels too will soon appear his saints to save his enemies subdue. That glorious rest will then commence, which prophets did foretell, when saints will reign with Christ on earth and in his presence dwell a thousand years. O glorious day, dear Lord, prepare my heart to stand with thee on Zion's mount and nevermore to part. That is the gathering of Israel. And this is the message that the great gatherer himself is extending to each of us. It's happening right there in 3rd Nephi. It's happening right here, right now. Search the scriptures. Expound them, great and small. And what will you find? You will find a loving Father in heaven and a redeeming Savior, Jesus Christ, that are doing everything in their power and asking us to do everything in ours, to keep their promises, to gather us home.